welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. All history is a kind of fiction, and the best stories are often built around real people and places. So what can we learn from invented truths and our relationship with imagination and investigation? Why does fiction sometimes feel like the most honest way to tackle real events? It becomes a place where imagined stories tell us truths we would not otherwise see. Today's episode is Truth as Fiction and Fiction as Truth. Based on a true story, Rabbit Foot Bill by Helen Humphreys is about a lonely boy in a prairie town who befriends a vagrant in 1947 and then witnesses a shocking murder. Being with Bill is everything to young Leonard, so his shock is absolute when he witnesses Bill commit a sudden violent act and loses him to prison. Helen spoke with author and poet Frances Boyle, who we recently featured on our short story podcast where she discussed her debut collection, Seeking Shade. Here's a taste of Helen's prose, followed by their conversation. Bill never leaves, likes to leave town the same way twice. He strides out with an urgency I find hard to match. He leads me through the tamarack woods. He leads me through the meadow bog. He leads me through the tall prairie grasses. He leads me across the swift, shallow river. I usually have to run to keep him in my sight. We have been friends for a year, Bill and I, and although people don't approve, we are friends anyway. I like that Bill isn't bothered by what people say. Mostly, he is just worried that someone will follow him out of town and see where he lives. The reasons why people don't like my being friends with Bill are these. First, because he is a man and I am a 12-year-old boy. And second, because he is a man who is not like other men. He doesn't talk much. He doesn't live in a house. He doesn't have a real job. He doesn't have a family. People say he's slow, but as I've already said, I have to run to keep up with him. Thank you so much for being here, Helen. Um, thank you for uh, beginning with that reading. It's a lovely setting of the scene, uh, setting of uh, the uh, the narrator, uh, Leonard's voice. And it also is one of several um, uh, sections in the book where you you go back and uh, use almost the exact phrasing in, in a couple of different places throughout. And sometimes it's chilling, but here it... Um, is beautiful and, and reassuring. Um, Rabbit Foot Bill is um, the latest in your wide-ranging and prolific career, and it's a totally absorbing book. It's about friendship and trauma, about obsession and healing, all set in a wonderfully evoked Saskatchewan landscape. I've got many questions I uh, want to ask, and we'll hope to get to many of them, but uh, Let's begin with the basics for everybody listening. Um, what is the story about and how did you come to write it? I was approached about 18 years ago at a literary festival by um, a man and, and his friend who he wanted me to help him write, uh, work on a story, which was the Rabbit Foot Bill story, which was his something from his own life. And um, I spent years sort of, we worked together and he wanted to write he was wanting to write it himself and he did actually, you know, do a version of it himself. But at a certain point during the process, um, I think we mutually decided that maybe I would take a shot at it as well. And so that, that's how it came to be. I it went through many different drafts. I, I, I've been working on it in, in a way on and off for at least that time, 18 years. Wow. That's amazing. 
based on a true story that, uh, you know, the ubiquitous line from so many movies uh, precedes the book. You've, you've written uh, that you like the term true story, and I'm quoting from uh, your memoir, Nocturne. You say, while I stand in the chaos and swirl of my life, I'm in the midst of truth. Once I decide what experience or sensation comes first and then what comes second, I've begun to make a story. It doesn't matter that the facts are facts. The ordering of experience is uh, the relevant part. And that was in a memoir that you said that. Is it the same or different when you're writing fiction? It's the same. I mean, you're, you're always constructing a story, whether it's based on factual information, whether it's based on something from history, whether it's based just on what you're making up entirely out of yourself. The moment you start putting things in an order, you've started to make a story. So it's, um, I always, you know, people get fixated on this idea of something being true, but the moment you start to write it down, it, it's, it, in a way, just becomes less true because you're already deciding, you're prioritizing, right? What What's going to go first? What's going to go second? How are you going to move through this narrative? Mm-hmm. So even though something is supposedly true, it's always in the ordering and the telling fiction. Yes. And, you know, that's a wonderful observation about uh, about creation. And um, you've written other, other books where you start off with a real historical character and uh, a solid half of your, of your last book, uh, which, which I totally loved, Machine Without Horses, you have a writer, narrator, um, working out how to create a story based on a life where there's only sort of a uh, objective facts uh, known. Um, here, there are at least I guess, three versions behind the story. The, the one that your friend, uh, Hugh Lefebvre, right? Uh, yes, that's right, um, yeah. Uh, his, you know, his, his version of the story, uh, the, the factual ones that you found through research and the fictional elements that you developed. So how did, how did you use these three threads in, in shaping the story? Well, first off, I, I was prepared, you know, Hugh had remembered a lot of things very precisely. So I went initially, you know, with his version, and then started to research the facts around his version. But the interesting thing was, and this is about the infallibility of memory, is that some things he got exactly right. Like there's a line of dialogue that Bill says in the book that was said at the the time of the incident in the book, and is also in the court transcripts that I found. Mm -hmm. So, so this line verbatim was remembered, and, and is, is there. But then uh, he, would rem- he remembered Bill as being, he said, a man in his prime around the age of 39, 40. Well, in actuality, Bill was 73. Wow. So that's a, that's a big leap from 39, 40 to 73. So it just shows you how memory isn't accurate. And in the end, the story that I researched, the factual story was less interesting than the, the version that Hugh had told me. So in the end, I went with his version because you know, novelists are always on the search of story and the better story wins. And so yeah. that, that was the better story. So it won. The character of, of Bill is just, just fascinating, particularly as he's viewed through the, you know, the, the eyes of the young boy and then later the, um, the, the 24-year-old um, young, young man, Leonard. Uh, he's tragic, uh, but somehow a noble figure. And, he, and he's contradictory in, in a lot of ways. He's... Uh, an enigmatic outsider, but he spends time with with Leonard and befriends him. He's a a patient teacher and a very gentle guide, yet 
there is uh, an act of extreme violence. Um, he looks out for Leonard and in both stages of his life uh, cares for him, actually, but he also seems to come become dependent on him. And there is one wonderful moment that I thought was uh, sort of opened up the character for me quite a bit when uh, after um, in the later later life Leonard tries to jog Bill's memory uh, and as Bill is recalling him he says oh yes a boy was often kind to me when I lived in Sugar Hill and uh, we've seen it only from Leonard's perspective so far that the kindness that Bill has shown to him so I, I, I thought this was just a wonderful uh, wonderful reversal and I wonder if you could talk a bit about sort of the different prismatic aspects of Bill and how they're important to Leonard. Yeah, I think I think um, the most important thing about that relationship was that it was mutual. Mm-hmm. It was a mutual friendship and that affection was there on both sides. So it wasn't something uh, invented by Leonard. It was there from Bill's side as well. But Bill, you know, Bill has a lot of damage and he is he is really an unpredictable character and he has done certain things um, to manage his damage, really. He's decided he doesn't want to be around people, and so he's kept himself away from society. He lives inside this kind of dugout that he's made in a hill, Sugar Hill. And he doesn't allow people near him, but he allows the boy near him because, you know, a child is less alarming, perhaps, than an adult would be. So in that way, they're able to, to get close. But, um, yeah, it's, it's... But he is a kind of unpredictable character, and knows that about himself, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and that also, I think it's dangerous for him to become close to people. And we see that play out in what happens in the book, that he, he allows himself to get close to Leonard. And then there's a sort of repercussions for that, mm-hmm. for that closeness. Yeah. Serious repercussions for both of them, as it turns out. But I wanted to sort of say, too, that like, you know, we can in life, we can, we can love many different people. They don't all have to fit into a kind of a, a role for us, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to be, it doesn't have to be romantic love. It doesn't have to be, you know, the love of your, for your parents or for your children or all of these things. There can be loves that exist outside of this and they're no less important because they're, they're formative, right? It, I mean, this, this affection that, the love that Leonard feels for Bill, it forms a lot of his, is very important to him in his life. Yeah. And I think vice versa also, actually, mm-hmm. even though it's more damaging for Bill because of Bill's sort of fragile mental state. You, you've written um, in other interviews, you, you, you said that the, the book's characters are trying to fix themselves. And you've alluded to that in talking about Bill. But what, how, how do uh, Bill and Leonard and other characters attempt to, attempt to uh, heal or even, even to cope with, uh, with what, what they've been through? Yeah, I think this book for me is very much a book about how we heal ourselves from trauma mm-hmm. and, the, and the optimistic gesture of that, right? It's an optimistic, ge- it's, a, it's a life-affirming gesture to try and want to get better or fix yourself in some way, even though, you know, those things are really kind of impossible. But the gesture and, and moving towards that is optimistic and life-affirming. And so every character in the book really is trying to do that, I, I think, or I, I'm, I tried to make it like that. Um, you know, Bill is trying to heal, heal himself by, he knows it's not good for him to be around human society. And so he tries to heal himself by taking him out of human society. He's okay with animals and um, he's all right, you know, just by himself. And he sort of lets, lets the boy into his world, but you know, that's actually kind of a mistake, Um, but you can't blame him. And, and, you know, Leonard is trying to, to sort of 
when he's young, he's not trying to heal himself, but as he's, when he's older and he realizes that there is some damage in his own life and he, he's trying to figure out what, what that is. And because he becomes a psychiatrist, he has tools at his disposal to, to try and work on, on what that is. Mm -hmm. And so, 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 so everybody, you know, is, is sort of um, the woman Lena gets involved with, she has her own damage and she's trying to kind of fix things for herself and everybody's, everybody's trying to heal the damage, mm -hmm. I think, which I think is a very uh, universal thing. I think we're all, if we're, if we're trying to get healthy, we're trying to kind of, you know, deal with things in us that aren't ideal and, and make them better as we can, yeah. if we can. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's a good segue to talk about the Weyburn. You know, the, the section at the Weyburn Mental Hospital is the, uh, you know, the largest section in the book. It takes uh, takes um, probably the longest span of time and, and co covers the most pages. Um, and the Weyburn Mental Hospital was, at one time, it was one of the, the largest buildings in Canada and maybe even in the, even the Commonwealth. Um, I think it was very innovative at uh, at Weyburn, and I I think that you know unlike the other LSD trials that we hear about it, like at the Clark Institute in Montreal and the CIA involvement, I think it was uh, well intentioned and progressive at the time. But um, can you talk a, a bit about uh, about the LSD trials and you know sort of what role they play in the book and how you see them as effective or or not in the 2020 hindsight from historical perspective yeah i think i think you're right in your assessment i think they were very they were quite altruistic and they were based on wanting to this idea of wanting to get inside what they described as madness and see and see madness from the inside so this to this end in the lsd trials that they did they the patient and the doctor would take lsd together and then the doctor would also be in, you know, going on their own kind of trip and, and they would be hopefully, you know, getting a greater understanding of what it was, what everything was like for the patient. And so in that, I, you know, I find that admirable actually in lots of ways that, that it was, it was well-intentioned and they had some success, particularly with them um, treating alcoholics. They had a lot of success with alcoholics, but then of course the sixties happened and, and LSD became used in the general public unregulated it was regulated you know in the, in the mental hospital so so all the, the the those experiments lost their credibility when when the larger drug use was happening out in, in the world and the whole psychedelic 60s and stuff was happening so yeah but but i do i think they were ahead of their time and they were doing something and now people are microdosing there's this whole kind of movement back towards this idea of microdosing again mm -hmm. and so it uh yeah, I thought I thought in many ways it was uh, it was an admirable thing to do, and and the, the the desire to to be you know not the overseer of the patient, but on the same the same level as the patient was was a kind of a good desire, mm. I think. Um, Leonard's thrown into his work at the hospital in in the later section. He's a young young freshly graduated psychiatrist. Um, uh, who comes to the Weyburn, and he's thrown into his work without any real orientation. It was a very, very overwhelming situation that he was coming into, right? It's a very big place with a lot of people in it, and he's very young and untried, but 
you know, he was sort of purposefully hired because of that also, because he would be more willing to undergo, to undertake the LSD experiments in, the, in the, my book. I mean, everybody's made up in my book, but the chief doctor is, that's his, that's his pet thing he wants to, to do are the LSD experiments. And so he's purposefully hiring people who he can, you know, knows that he can kind of get in line with that. So, so Leonard in a way is, shouldn't probably be there, but you know, it's back in his home province where he wants to be. And so, you know, there's all these reasons why he is there, but it, it makes total sense that he's just, you know, overwhelmed from the very beginning. And, and that first scene is, yeah, the doctors take LSD together once a month and he's you know expected to, to do that. Well, one of his first things at the hospital. Um, did you have a chance to visit uh, the, the, the hospital before it was torn down? I didn't. Oh, that's, no, that's unfortunate. I yeah, I mean, I, I, I've just seen the photos, and it looks like it must have been a truly overwhelming place with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, farms and and factories and and everything with within within the facility. You know, that idea before medication, where you, you work and exercise will help. Yeah. You know, with any with any kind of mental health problems, and so they had these factories, farms. They were they were self sustaining agriculturally. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to visit it. But you have evoked the, uh, you know, the prairie landscape very, very effectively. Uh, saying as somebody who grew, who grew up in Saskatchewan, it it uh, it feels very real to me. Oh, that's good. I did spend part of three summers out there, mm-hmm. uh, so so you know, I it had a big impression on me. I loved it. I loved the prairie landscape. Actually, it was. I found it much more impressive and moving than I had imagined. It stayed with me. You know, you can I can still kind of call it up. Mm-hmm. Those enormous skies and the way you can see weather, you know, moving from really far away. Yes. Which yeah. is really amazing. We talk a bit about the structure of the book. Uh, the first section that, that you that you read the beginning of uh, spans a little more than a single day. It's one evening, the entire following day and the next morning. Um, then, as I mentioned, the, the biggest section it covers Len's first few weeks at the Weyburn, then a shorter section also at Weyburn. And then you return to the time frame of the first section and finally jump jump forward in time. Uh, how how did you come to that structure for, for the book? Well, there's there's certain things I, I don't want to reveal. The book depends in some ways on revealing certain things, and I, I don't want to reveal those things off the top. So that's why I think I have that structure that's kind of roundabout. So although the later section that takes place the same time as the very first section in 1947 is actually sort of attached to it because it's the trial, Bill's trial. I didn't want to attach it to that first section because there's information in that trial section I didn't want to come out until later. So, so it's all just about really about how to slow down the reveal yes. and, and, and make things come at a pace that um, makes sense and, and, a, and a, occur at a particular time in the story that I want the reader to know them. So, mm-hmm. so really that's, that's why. Mm-hmm. And, and also Leonard is trying to understand at this point, he's trying to understand the past. So it makes sense to go back to the past, you know, and, and all of that and, and run it again. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that happens. And then um, the jump happens at the very end because there's a, you know, there's a pivotal thing that happens that sets uh, other things in motion and more of the reveal is possible because of this event that's happened mm-hmm. in the future, right? So he, he mm-hmm. goes back again to the past. So it's all about 
I like this, you know, this is how we deal with anything, isn't it? We think about it again, we return to it, we move away from it, we return to it, and, and we get a new perspective. And so I really wanted it to kind of follow that, the journey. Yeah, and it, and it, it was very effective in sort of, um, you know, sort of as, as the layers uh, revealed themselves to to Leonard and and you know we're we're in the journey along with with Leonard which is which is really phenomenal I think as as he discovers things about himself and about about the about the past without uh doing too many reveals uh Leonard encounters several bullies in the book uh what do you want to say about that in in terms of in the book well I guess just you know I think bullies are good at picking out people who are, can be bullied, mm-hmm. right? They have that, that ability, you know? So, you know, you, I, Leonard's, first of all, with the school thing, he just moved to that town. He's only recently there. He's not from it. He's small, you know, with all these reasons why when you're a child, people would pick on you. Um, and then it just, I think if you have been bullied once, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. People can, can smell it on you or something. And it, it's, easy for you to be bullied again so I think that's just been the case with him is that is that he was bullied and it's easy to for other people to bully him um can you talk a little bit about uh, a couple of the um other secondary characters um both of both of whom are important to the story uh, William Scott uh is Leonard's fellow psychiatrist and uh and and friend uh, and he's a black man, the only character identified as a person of color in the book. And he observes things in Leonard that others don't seem to see. Uh, he's at Weyburn because he believes in emancipation, which I guess extends to freedom of the mind as well as the body. Um, and then the other the other um, character is Lucy Weber. She's Leonard's mother's friend, and she's the only person outside Leonard's family who appears in all three of the sections that take place in Canwood. And um, uh, I guess you can say maybe a, a little bit about, about each, each of them and how, how their, uh, their, their role in the story. Um, I think that just each of them, they are both friends to Leonard. And that's, that's the importance of them. Like, like really uh, in, a, in another level on this, this book, it, um, it's also about friendship, yeah. right? And there's the friendship, the primary friendship of Bill and Leonard and Bill, but then Leonard is also friends. William Scott becomes a friend of his and helps him. And Lucy Weber is, even though she's a friend of his mother's, which she's a good friend of his mother's, but she also becomes a friend to him mm-hmm. and, and helps him as well. And so I think it's just, um, you know, friendship is a level at which Leonard succeeds, I guess. In other ways in the book, he fails at many things, but I think he succeeds in his friendships. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an important part of the story is those are the relationships that actually, you know, work for him. Work for him and sustain him. Yeah, and sustain him. Yeah. yeah. And so really that's that's sort of, you know, aside from the personal, the individual nature of the characters, that that's what those those characters are about. They're about, you know, um, yeah, being his friend and also pulling out certain threads of the past, helping him deal with the past. Both those characters help him deal with the past mm-hmm. in yeah ways that are that are very uh, very important to him and very very but very gentle at the same time. So yeah, 
Um, we're almost out of time, but people are always interested in in uh, process, in, in writing process and what your current writing process is. Um, do you immerse yourself in story or do you write in bits and do you write um, by hand or on the computer and um, just do you isolate yourself for days on end or, or is it part of, part of a, a stream of life? Well, novels or anything that's large, like um, a large project like that requires a certain distancing from regular life because you have to hold a lot in your head. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're difficult that way. So for, for a novel, I, I always have a notebook where I put things down, you know, that I need to research or that occur to me or something's going on and that goes into the notebook and I write that by hand, but I work on the computer for the story itself. And I do try now that I'm older and that, uh, I find novels, I find large projects harder in a way that it's it, because they're, they take a couple of years usually and it's, it's very intensive. So I try and write a fast first draft. So I will just work all, all the time I can basically mm-hmm. in the beginning and just get things down as quickly as possible. And then you can spend longer in rewriting because there's something already there. But I find that getting the draft down quickly is helpful. Uh, because you can manage rewriting with other things in your life, but it's very hard to manage a life and to make be making an, a you know a big project at the same time. So one has to you know sacrifice for the other, and usually you know usually the life sacrifices for the project. So I just try to do it as quickly as possible, I guess, to make it mm-hmm. as painless as possible. You know, it's mm-hmm. always painful. Um, you've written. A bunch of novels, a couple of really wonderful nonfiction books, and a very moving memoir. Um, one of the novels, Wild Dogs, was adapted for the stage, and you mentioned it in the acknowledgments that you'd collaborated on a screenplay version of Rabbit Foot Bill. Um, and then your books also have some really interesting hybrids of fiction and nonfiction and metafiction. Um, how do you how do you work in all these different genres, and uh, how do you decide what form an idea is going to develop into? Yeah, I, I don't, yes, I don't know. I'm always sort of looking imaginatively to push things and to push myself, right? So so often when you think of um, how to tell a story or how to do anything, basically, the first idea that occurs to you is the easiest one, not necessarily the best one. Mm-hmm. So I'm always sort of pushing at the development stage to figure out what's the best way to tell a story because, you know, stories have been told certain thousands of times there's there's really not you know that many variation on plots so if you could tell it differently with structure or some other way I'm always looking for that so that's why often I you know I blend things and I'm less interested in I mean there is a blending of things just in life I don't like things I don't see the need to keep things into their little categories I don't see why there can't be fiction and non-fiction and vice versa so so yeah I guess you know, that's what I'm always trying to do is just push the boundaries somehow, both in myself and my process. And because I've written a lot of books, you know, you can't, you can't just do the thing you did before. So it's really important and, you know, trying to do something new. Your, your writing is beautiful and it's a real gift to be able to have it. And uh, was a wonderful gift to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you so very much, Helen. Thank you, Francis. That was, it was very nice to talk to you. That was Frances Boyle interviewing Helen Humphreys about her latest book, Rabbit Foot Bill. Our next guest is Will Ferguson. He won the Scotiabank Giller Prize for his novel 419 and is a three-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor, 
who has been nominated for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the Impact Dublin Literary Award. His latest, The Finder, is a beguiling and wildly original tale about the people, places, and things that are lost and found in our world. Will spoke with Peter Robb, a writer and editor with artsfile.ca and the former deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen. Here's a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. I'm talking with three-time Leacock winner, one-time Giller winner, Calgary native Will Ferguson about his latest novel uh, called The Finder, which is really a treasure hunt of a thing. Um, welcome. Uh, you're going to do a short reading, and why don't you tell me a little bit about it and maybe set it in its proper place. Well, The Finder is uh, about a mysterious figure, kind of an anti-hero, who travels the world uh, collecting lost objects, not gold or treasure, but objects, real objects that have been lost. Uh, for example, Buddy Holly's glasses, when his plane crashed in 1959, they were tagged as evidence, stored in a courthouse and forgotten. So he hunts these down. He's very ruthless. And uh, the passage I'm going to read is a glimpse into his childhood and where these obsessions may have come from his childhood in a rough area of Belfast, which is where my family is from, coincidentally. I've always had a knack for finding things. My mother said it was no fun hiding jelly beans for me on Easter morning, because instead of charging about pell-mell as other children would, I would move through thoughtfully, methodically, removing each candy one by one. What she didn't understand was that the color of the jelly beans was so at odds with their surroundings that very little searching was required. Although a few times I did indeed pretend to be fooled, if only to make her feel better. She was always so much more excited about Easter than I was. Oh, you didn't think to look inside the teapot, did you? In fact, the teapot was one of the first places I spotted. It had clearly been moved. I could see at a glance that it was sitting slightly off-center on its doily, all but screaming, in here, in here. Wait long enough and everything becomes a relic. It was only much later that I realized that Easter was meant to be a celebration of a life resurrected, not a candy-colored treasure hunt. I'd always thought it was a holiday, a holiday of the lost and found. I grew up on Shankill Road, which means nothing to you or everything, depending on your degree of familiarity with the niceties of Northern Ireland. It's been so long since I've been home. I don't really know whether the flat or the building is still standing. I was named for a king, a king so I was, William III on his snow white horse, a drawn sword pointing ever forward, no surrender, no surrender. This book is so, pulls together so many threads, so many bits, so much information. What's the genesis of this book? What's the idea? When did it sort of take, take shape and how did it become so complex? Well, it's several threads came together. And I do find there's a trend towards thinner, simpler, stripped down prose for people who don't have perhaps the same attention span that we used to read Dostoevsky, uh, say, so I did want to create kind of a return to those rich novels that you'd see in Dickens, say, where characters are interwoven and storylines are, 
are interwoven. So I wanted to return to kind of the potential of the novel. I think lately the novel has been turned into just a glorified short story. I find more and more. So yeah. I wanted to kind of return to that richly knotted type of story. And it's several strands kind of came together. Um, one has been sitting in the back of my mind for 30 years, strangely. Um, it began back in 1991. I was traveling through Okinawa in Japan, Southern Japan. And uh, I realized that if I took a short plane and a short ferry, I could reach this tiny little island at the very, very end of Japan. It's the farthest south point you can go in Japan. After that, it's open ocean and then Papua New Guinea, I suppose. So anyway, I went to Hataruma and there's not much there. I was walking around, I spent two nights and there was a, a police, there's only about, I don't know, three, 400 people on this little tiny island, a piece of coral stuck in the ocean. There was a police box with one police officer. So there was a one officer on the island and out front of the police station, there was this giant billboard showing Japan's most wanted with these scowling Yakuza characters, you know, yeah. terrifying people from Tokyo and Osaka. And I thought, my God, what would happen to this guy if someone showed up, if one of Japan's most wanted showed up on this island? So that was in the back of my mind thinking, what would happen? What would this one officer do on this tiny island in the middle of nowhere? A uh, second stream was this idea of the MacGuffin. So I studied, I was a film student and uh, we studied. I was wondering what that, why the Hitchcock. So, okay, I'm, I'm making it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll notice there's a heavy Hitchcock element oh, yeah. running through it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, actually I hid uh, a dozen references to Hitchcock movies throughout the, the, the novel. The novel's full of Easter eggs. Um, itself. I thought that was appropriate considering it's a book about finding lost and hidden objects. So yeah, there's a dozen references to various Hitchcock films from Vertigo to the 39 steps to the wrong man, to the torn window, to the, uh, sorry, the torn, torn curtain. Yeah. Um, and uh, Hitchcock himself has a cameo. He's the fat man in Sydney. Uh, so oh, even, okay. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> Yeah, he's the Melvin, the Melvin with a Y. Uh, that's Hitchcock's cameo. Um, so there's a sense of play. I wanted to bring a sense of play oh, yeah. in, in yeah. this story. But uh, in the MacGuffin is a, uh, a term that Hitchcock used. And it meant an, ex an object or a quest that was really just an excuse for the story. So um, a, a map or a, a, a code or a key. Uh, in the Maltese Falcon, which is not a Hitchcock film, but very much in the Hitchcockian vein, there's the Maltese Falcon itself is kind of a MacGuffin. It's the, the object that everyone's looking for, but really it's just an excuse for the story. Right. He didn't really care. He even called it a MacGuffin. It doesn't matter. But I was thinking, even in film school, what if the MacGuffin is the story? What if you pivoted and made the objects the point of the story? Uh, not an excuse for the story, but the heart of the story. So I had this idea, what if, and that's where almost all novels, I think uh, all novels worthy of the name, start with that question, what if, what if this happened? And what if someone decided to find not one lost object and not two lost objects, but all the lost objects he could. And that was, those two stories collided. Um, and then I was in New Zealand in Christchurch, uh, 
10 years after the earthquake, nine years after the earthquake, and looking at how the city was still struggling to rebuild. As a travel writer, I thought, what would I do if I, got, if I was caught in the Christchurch earthquake? Like, how would you handle that? Would you write about the earthquake or would you keep going as a travel writer? So I took those three elements, a travel writer, uh, someone who's obsessed with finding lost objects, and this poor Japanese policeman all alone at the end of the world. And I, I wove them together. I thought of them as three strands and I braided them into one story. And, and of course, that's not all there is in there. Um, New Zealand land of contrast, I'll, I'll mention. That. <laughs> yes, a land of contrast. <laughs> Which, have you written that phrase is in, in your travel pieces ever? In a travel piece about New Zealand, yes. You know the, the article he's writing? Uh, so I should explain, sorry. There's a character named Thomas Rafferty who's a burnt-out middle-aged travel writer uh, who's very different from me because I'm a burnt-out middle-aged former travel writer. See, there's a big difference between Ferguson and Rafferty. We're very different people. Uh, and he, uh, he's writing a travel piece about New Zealand, and that's actually... Those are excerpts from travel articles I've written over the years including the, the, the famous or infamous travel writing phrase, a land of contrasts. I love it. If you Google, if you Google Will Ferguson land of contrasts, uh, I'm sure several articles will pop up where I've used that phrase. It's kind of the, uh, the go-to phrase for travel writers because any destination can be described as a land of contrasts. Absolutely. It's just, it's just a throwaway, but it's, it's a, it's, it, it, I, it lures in idiots like me, I guess. I, <laughs> but anyway, well, it's it, it, interesting how travel has, uh, I mean, you've been to all these places that are mentioned in the book, I guess, except for uh, the, the, uh, the Devil Still Creek. Devil Spite Creek. Well, there was a reason, there was a strategic reason for that because I'm so hard on the town. I thought I better shift this town. It's based ah. on a town, of course, but I thought I'm not going to get in trouble. And it was unfair um, I don't think anyone likes to think that they live in a metaphorical uh, environment or that they, they live in a, a gothic, uh, burnt, you know, uh, dead end town. So, but you're right. I've been to all those places to Uluru, which was formerly known as Ayers Rock out in the outback right. to Christchurch, to Hell's Gate in New Zealand and Hataruma Island. And yeah, I've been to all those places as a travel writer generally. What does travel meant to you? Like, you know, like what does it, given you well it's uh well you know i grew up in a very very small town uh in northern alberta closer i always say closer to the arctic circle than the american border and we always joked it was where the birds turned around and came back there was a hospital that uh for the that region like the northern regional hospital for all those far-flung uh, reserves and communities and that's where my mom worked and i was born up there Okay. So I've always been attracted to kind of the edge of things. I've always said I emigrated to Canada. Like <laughs> Canada was a Southern country. It was this exotic, it was where the radio signals came from. You know, you'd sit and you'd listen to the radio. Uh, and we didn't get television until, 19, I think it was 1976 in time for the, the Montreal Olympics. Yeah. Areas further North than us got television before us because it was very important for, you know, regional security and the Arctic. So we weren't Arctic. We were just kind of lost in the boreal forest. So I think I grew up just yearning for anywhere but there. Okay. And at the same time, I've been attracted to far-flung areas. I like 
like I like outer Okinawa. I like New Zealand. Uh, I'm desperate to get to Iceland. I was supposed to be in Iceland this year. It didn't happen because of the COVID. I was supposed to be taking a train from Moscow to St. Petersburg for a magazine. That didn't happen. And I was supposed to be taking the Rocky Mountaineer train. Oh, really? Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, so I've taken it before, yeah. uh, two years ago. So I was taking it again uh, with my wife. And so Iceland, Moscow, St. Petersburg, the Rocky Mountaineer, it's all been canceled. So answer your question, what travel means right now, it, it's nostalgic. Travel, um, I'm, I'm like all of us stuck in armchair travel. I mean, that's what we're doing now. And uh, we're virtual travel. But it's a travel for me had always been a way of kind of getting out into the world, engaging with the world. And I, I really, like we all do, it's not unique to me. I really miss it. I miss the feeling of being in motion, of going somewhere else. But, but clearly the, this is a, I mean, I don't want to overplay this, but there is an ode to a life of travel in this book. Was that absolutely yeah absolutely yes so it's it's um uh travel writer so the this burnt out middle-aged travel writer and his sometime lover right sometime nemesis uh friend tamson green who's a war photographer right. they end up in christchurch new zealand during the earthquake and they cross paths with the finder and he's a very kind of a dark figure. I always saw him as a kind of a fallen angel. He's very, very driven and he's there to collect a lost item connected to Alfred Hitchcock, which I won't, I won't give away. So I like the idea of lives colliding, of, right. of different lives on different trajectories, crossing and colliding and exploding. You know, the finder himself, you know, he's this, this, he's, he's got a face, but it's, un, you know, it's the kind of face that's not memorable. He's small. He's, um, easily lost in a crowd, I suspect. But he's also kind of the angel of death, isn't he? I mean, that's sort of, you know, everything, as he goes about seeking out these artifacts, there's bodies that sort of fall <laughs> by the wayside. That's Very much, that, yeah. That, uh, when did you decide to make him that, sort of the opposite of life and death in a way? Well, I... You're, you're absolutely right. He is kind of, I saw him as a kind of an angel of death. Um, and the reason I don't want to give it away, the reason I wounded him so badly at one point uh, is to remind readers, I didn't want readers to think he actually is the devil. Like I, like sometimes books can go down that path right. and that's fine. But I was worried that readers would think, oh, I get it. He's actually the devil. He's not, he's a, he's a demonic figure. But at one point he almost dies and has to be nursed back to health. And the reason I did that was to remind people he's, he's flesh and blood, but he kind of is represents our darker instincts and the key to him is things and objects mean more to him than people. Yes. If a person gets in the way, they, like you say, they just get cut down. So he's in love with objects, not with humans. And people are, are just a means to an end for him. He's a collector. He's a finder. And uh, very early on, I thought I wanted to make him an anti-hero. I've always been fascinated by books and movies where you cheer for the wrong person. And I always think of um, both the novel and the movie as well, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, where you should not be cheering for this guy. You should not, but he's murdering and taking identities. And, and yet you're just compelled because he represents, uh, I think, the broken side of us. 
the yearning side of us, the side of us that's desperate and just trying to succeed in the face of everything. And uh, I wanted to play with that idea of someone, hopefully the reader is drawn to the finder and kind of hopes he escapes and hopes he pulls it off, even though they really should not be cheering for him. I, I must say, I really like this book. And I like, I like the sort of momentum of it. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it's con the, the threads that you are pulling together, was it hard to write? Was it hard to pull all this together? Or Yes, it was. It was, um, I, I like to challenge the reader. You know, I wanted to challenge the reader and, and it is very complex and woven together. And I'm kind of old school, you know, I'm 55. I don't, I, I use colored index cards. So oh, I, I color, yeah, so like green is Tamsin, Tamsin green. You see what I did? Uh, blue is uh, Rafferty because he's feeling down all the time. And so um, I would, I write out summaries of the scenes. So Tamsin meets the finder. They negotiate over his soul. Uh, he decides to trade something for a letter, you know, so on. So I lay, and there's maybe a hundred different scenes. I, I took me years to realize, don't break a, a book down by chapters. It took me years. Break it down by beats. Like, because sometimes three scenes will be in one chapter. Do you mean? So I used to try to do a chapter, but sometimes chapters will include, and a beat is just an important moment, a key moment in the story. So I break it down by beats and then I color code it. This is really boring. I don't think anyone's listening at this point, but I color code it by character and uh, I'll even draw a line through it if it's two characters. So I'll do two different colors. You know, I'll, uh, combine the, can staple the two cards together or, and then I lay them out on my living room floor and the dining room table drives my wife crazy. This is the moment of a novel she hates. Uh, my previous two novels ago, sorry, 419 was even more complicated. So the finder is not as complicated as 419 was, but very similar process. And my wife walks in and goes, Oh no, not this. She looks around the house and it's like, have you ever seen close encounters of the third kind? Oh yeah. Remember where he starts sculpting the mashed potatoes? Yeah. I don't know if you remember Richard Dreyfus was obsessed with Devil's Peak. Yeah. And just everywhere he goes, that's what I'm like. I've got cards laying all around. I shuffle them. And visually, why, why the color coding helps is you step back. And if there's, if there's a cluster of green, that means you've got too much of that character. You're trying to cut back and forth. You're trying to see a kind of a rhythm. So certain parts of the novel go back and forth between uh, the lonely farm girl in New Zealand and Rafferty. Uh, wandering through Hell's Gate, for example. So that would have been, originally they would have been clusters of blue and pink. And oh. then it's blue, pink, blue, pink, blue, pink. So you just try to make it, my theory, I don't know if it works. Uh, I have no idea, but if it's visually interesting, if I look at my floor, oh yeah, and you don't know anything about the story. You don't know anything about the plot, but you can see, oh, it goes blue, green, blue, green, pink, 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 yellow, yellow, yellow. Oh, that's a nice pattern. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think yeah, if, it, yeah, if it's visually, if it's colorful and visually interesting, the story will be interesting. This is my theory. It's unproven so far, I think. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole thing in music about synesthesia. When you play a note, you hear it, you see a color. But anyway. Well, I always, I always had that. I always, it's only when I, probably in my 20s that it faded, but I used to see numbers as colors all the time. So even now I remember a red, uh, seven is a kind of a dark red. Wow. Uh, Eight is a kind of a light orange, and six was always a very like baby blue. Nine was black, not for any suspenseful reason, but it was a dark black. So I always saw uh, four was a green, was a kind of a Lincoln. So I used to always see numbers as colors, 
And some sounds were colors, not many, but mainly numbers. So a number was a color. And I always, I thought that was normal. I thought everybody saw, surely everybody sees seven as a dark red. And uh, then I found out that no, it's some glitch in my circuitry. But the sad thing is it goes away as you get older. So probably by my early 20s, when I was in film school, I remember telling someone this and then realizing that actually I didn't see it anymore. Like, as I told them, I realized, no, numbers don't, they don't bring a color to mind. So perhaps it's a, it's, I never thought of this until you brought it up, but perhaps laying out a story by color and looking for patterns is, is a remnant of that. Um, The one thing I, I I am one of those people who reads the acknowledgements and the notes at the end of books. Wow. You're the one, you're (laughs) the one. (laughs) I always think I could just put a a recipe for turkey gravy and nobody would notice (laughs) The reference to the children's book that you wrote for your cousin, your your niece Barbie. Yes, my <laughs> niece Barbie. That's 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 a nice little story. Why don't you tell me about that? What? Well, this one is this is very odd because I didn't realize till after the after the book was done. Uh, my niece Barbie, uh, Barbara Joy, uh, yeah. when I was in, and again I'd forgotten about this, but when I was in university, uh, it was her. This was in '88, so I think she was turning six or seven years old. And I was in, and I was broke, broke, broke. I was studying film. So all, I was working two or three jobs sometimes. And I was putting all my money into this film project and I was broke. And um, it was Christmas was coming up. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, I needed, wanted to give Barbie a gift. And I thought, well, I'll just write a comic book for her. And it turned into a story, um, like a children's book where she's the hero. And uh, so she goes off to the land, the, 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 the land of the gorilla king and he's lost his crown and she has all kinds of adventures and it was a fun little book that I made for her, and I sent it to her on her birthday and it's funny just a week or so ago I sent Barbara that book and I said do you remember that book she goes I've got it on my shelf your children's book so uh, inside that book there was a character called the king of forgotten things and it's everything that things people have lost thumbtacks and paper clips and frisbees and um pencils and crayons and uh, bracelets he gathers them all up he he collects these and Barbara Joy goes and works with him to find this lost object this crown of the gorilla the gorilla's count crown and I when I when I saw that I was like oh my god that's really the heart of that story I did not realize that 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 idea of a king of forgotten things and there's even that phrase in the novel one yeah. of the characters says, I'm the king of forgotten things. And when, when the penny dropped, I thought, wow. So this is something that I wrote, a children's book I wrote as a university student in 1988. And it was always there in the back of your mind. Right? It was always there. I didn't, I didn't even realize it. So I give Barbie credit in the acknowledgments for, you know, that that story is where the genesis of it came from. It was a very strange moment. And there was even a, a stranger moment uh, just recently I was, I was culling my papers. I used to, because I, I used to illustrate and I would do cartoons and illustrations and the, the children's book was very, very illustrative. You know, the story was very thin, but the lots of images and castles and battles and it was a very fun book to draw. And I used to write um, cartoons for my, at York University. I used to write a regular cartoon uh, called Professors I Have Known and students I've known. So it was basically mocking, like you talk about the archetypal humanities professor, the archetypal engineering professor, the archetypal drama student. And it was drew a cartoon with illustrations, you know, pointing out 
like a field guide, right? So I was doing this a regular cartoon for my newspaper and I found one, clippings, because someone had asked me about my drawings. I said, well, I'll show you. I've got somewhere here. I've got my old university, you know, clippings. So I went through my filings and I finally found it and I came out and the title of the newspaper was The Finder. Oh, no. <laughs> I got a shiver. Yeah. So the, it was the Founders Finder. That was the newspaper. It was like the college paper. Uh, I was at Founders College, part yeah. of York University. And when I saw it, the big headline says, The Finder. I was like, ah. So who knows what is wow. simmering no in the stew pot of my brain? Who knows? You are a deep and complex human being. <laughs> well, it was more creepy. Like it was more, it really gave me a yeah, shiver. Yeah, it it was more like, yeah. Lord. Because the title popped in right at the beginning. The title of The Finder oh, just it popped was, up. Yeah. yeah, it just popped up. That was the title from the start, like Finder, The Finder. So uh, at somewhere, you know, I used to write, I used to draw cartoons for The Finder, literally. I mean, it's amazing what sticks in the, in the lizard part mm, of the brain, mm. right? You know, and, and it comes out when you least expect it. Uh, how do you feel about this book? Uh, what do you think? Well, I'm happy with it. Like I said, I wanted to write a... It's not a book if you want a breezy pocketbook, if you just want something to sit on a beach and flip through. So I, I did know I'm, you know, it's, it's a complex narrative uh, and it tackles big themes. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's about lost people, broken people. And the characters in the novel, I don't want to spoil it because you, you want readers to think that any one of them could die at any one time. But uh, the core characters are the novel I'm working on right now are those same characters. So it's the next finders, the finders continuing that character, uh, the next novel. So he's a continuing character now. So the next, the book I'm writing right now uh, is supposedly set in Iceland. I'm outlining it and it will have uh, the finder tracking down lost objects. So this is this world. I, I, I the world I created uh, will continue, uh, which Makes it much easier for me. I got every novel I had to create a world from scratch. Right. So, this, uh, yeah. <laughs> so these characters are already there. Rafferty's there. Uh, he, he's back. The war photographer's back. The Interpol agent is chasing him. I, I kind of hesitate telling that, telling you that though, because now hey. people reading it know that, well, we know that Rafferty is not going to get killed because he's in the next novel. But I think the trade-off, because it does diminish some of the tension, but yeah. the trade-off is you get a return to these characters if you like them, if you enjoy Thomas Rafferty, if you enjoy The Finder, then you can return and see them in another story, which I like. I think of the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, there was a yeah. whole series of Ripley. Do you envision more than one more? Or Oh, yes, yes. I've got three or four ideas lined up for this. If, it, if, if the stories keep coming, if I, keep enjoy, if I enjoy writing them, like that's yeah. the key. That's you have, to, you have to enjoy it. I want to thank you, Will, for taking some time to talk to me. I appreciate it very much. Peter, thanks for having me on. That was Arts Files' Peter Robb talking with Will Ferguson about his novel, The Finder. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We'll send you a tax receipt and our boundless gratitude. Best of all, with your support, be able to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. 
Thank you all for listening today, and thanks again to Francis Boyle, Helen Humphreys, Peter Robb, and Will Ferguson for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. Join us Tuesday for the next podcast, Lies That Tell Us Truth, featuring Farzana Doctor, Shani Mutu, and Mona Awad. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. <laughs>